when I look at these magazines, they are uh, selling items for people, you know, their fashion, their industry, their things that are, are presenting things to you in a way that for advertisement, you want to buy them because you will feel good. You will look good. This will be interesting for you. You will become a more interesting person. And I feel when I remove the material items and people and reassemble the backgrounds that there's almost like this psychic tension that exists within the picture plane. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 116th episode, Paul Lockney joins us from his Brooklyn studio, and I talk to him all about his recent collage work, his experience as a printmaker and 2D multimedia artist. We also talk about his intensive experience as a teenager exploring the arts and studying the arts with a lot of really significant, important teachers in his life. So please stay tuned for that. And of course, check out paullockney.com to follow along with some of the bodies of work that we're talking about. Just a reminder to those of you that have never heard of Studio Break, we want to let you know we are a podcast and blog site. We feature a variety of different artists that come on. They speak with me about their work, their studio practice, and we share these interviews for free on the Studio Break website. Once again, you can use that handy media player there. You can also go to the iTunes store and subscribe to the podcast that way. But once again, please check out all the great posts that we have. We have images of the artist's work, links to their websites, and these interviews. If you'd like, you can go back and check out all the archives on the left sidebar and go month by month. Check out all the great artists that you've missed. Once again, we're at 116, so a lot of good ones out there to check out. Also notice that I do also have a link on the Studio Break website, so if you'd like to see some of my work, I've just put up some new recent ones. You can check it out at davidlinaway.com. We would like to remind you that we are in the social media sphere, so if you like, you can like our Facebook page and get updates and keep apprised by liking our Facebook page. You can also go to Tumblr, that's studio-break.tumblr, and follow us there. You can also follow us on Twitter, and please, please tweet us, say hello, that's at Studio Break on Twitter, so please say hello in all those formats and follow us. All right, here is our interview with Paul Lockney. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. I'm really happy to be joined by Paul Lockney. How are you? I'm doing great, David. Good to talk to you. Yeah, it's great to finally have this all set up. And, you know, we've been chit-chatting for a half hour already. And so I thought maybe we should should go ahead and start. But, you know, it's been a lot of fun already. So obviously we're talking to you from Brooklyn today. But where did you grow up? Where are you from? And let's start there. You know, I I appreciate that. I I, I uh, enjoyed... uh, looking over the questions and actually thinking about the past because it actually brought up a lot of stuff that has not come across, uh, you know, my conscious mind for some time. Um, but I was raised in uh, New Jersey, right outside of Manhattan. My mom's family is from Manhattan. She's from Inwood, which is the most northern part of uh, this island. And I would come in as a kid. So um, in the late 70s and early 80s, I remember what the city used to be like in terms of riding the subways and sort of the crazy graffiti. And, you know, as a child of the 80s, I would come into the museums 
a little bit later on when I was in, in high school, I would come in to see punk shows and metal shows and hardcore shows. So that was uh, a good part of my upbringing. And uh, so I remember what it used to be like, which was kind of grimy, dangerous, and also fun. Yeah, I hear that a lot. So it's it's interesting to think about it now when I go back. And it, I don't know, I, it makes me wish that I could kind of go back into a time machine and, and see it for myself. Yeah, you know, some of it um, I, I don't wish I would see again. <laughs> you know, there was there was enough where it happened once, and I was like, wow. Uh, it's just uh, it's nice to be in an environment where you feel sort of so-called relatively safe. Sure, sure. But where I grew up was definitely uh, much more suburban, partly country. It was in a town called Mount Olive, and I grew up in one neighborhood uh, called Flanders. My art background, I think I was very fortunate to be exposed to the right people at the right time and people that lived in my neighborhood. And one uh, person in particular was an artist and a teacher named LaRue Berry who taught at my local public high school. And uh, my public high school actually had a, a, a very more than decent art department where we had uh, this teacher, Ron Orlando and LaRue Berry. Um, there was a photography classroom, which students were able to, receive up to two years of color photography before leaving high school, right? So you have a year of black and white, two years of color. Um, and then the, the painting and drawing department was something where, you know, we did a lot of form and structure and basic things. But both of the teachers, what they did is that they participated in a lot of the local competitions each year. Um, and they sort of understood the value of putting a portfolio together for each student. Now, LaRue Berry is someone who my mom had contact with when I was much, much younger. So actually, you know, even in grade school, I was involved with this woman, Lynn Dotson, who uh, sort of ran the art departments in our area. So early on, I was making drawings and um, basic painting. So by the time high school came around, I started to do some, some very basic things, such as portraits, still lifes, landscape. And it wasn't until... Uh, two major things happened, major as in how it helped my development along. This one is I learned about uh, a local artist. His name is Robert Blake. He's a children's book illustrator. He was in the next town, and I started taking private lessons with him on Wednesday nights. And he was someone who was a uh, really cool guy. I mean, I was like, if I was like 16 or 17, he was in his late 30s. And he was really into the old masters and we did oil painting in his barn and it was basically form and structure. We would do monochromatic compositions, you know, paint blue still lives or red still lives. And we talked about color and we talked about hue and we talked about form and we would do drawing outside in nature, very basic stuff, but in some ways, uh, incredibly, uh, strong fundamental hands-on practice and just the repetition of that kind of practice and also having fun, having a lot of jokes about it. And, um, in high school, I also was able to attend this summer program called the summer arts Institute, which was held at Rutgers university down in new Brunswick. And I went there in the summer of 1989 and summer of 1990. And that was a game changer for several reasons. Um, first of all, I was being introduced to an enormous range of kids my age from all different social, economic, racial backgrounds. 
Okay, so people that were there for visual arts, performance art, dance, music, theater, musical theater, performance art. Um, it was a sleepaway camp for five weeks. So you can imagine a bunch of crazy teenagers being away from their parents for the first time, by and large, uh, in an arts environment. I mean, you just you could just go with that for a sure. Minute, sure. Okay? I mean, uh, hopefully, hopefully and, nobody got arrested or, or jailed. You know. You know? Um, <laughs> <clears throat> no, I think we, we we just had a we you know let our imaginations run wild, sure, so sure. to speak. And it was also having classes that were three hours long that would mimic a college course. You know, so I was exposed to uh, that type of structure and also um, you know working with like intramural um, stuff with performance or stuff with music i mean i also played in a band at that time but this was something where it was uh having teachers that uh one teacher in particular is a a a man named john cavallis (laughs) who i have always been a fan of you know he was a artist lived in new jersey but showed in new york and uh, his attitude at the time for a painting class was like just go and paint you know go and paint go and work he also exposed us to a lot of uh, film, this archive, this amazing resource at Rutgers. And this is high school. I was exposed to Stan Brockage. I was exposed to uh, Andre Tarkovsky. Uh, I saw some Andre Rubilov and, um, and then some of the early surrealists, so Louise Bunel and Dali's uh, The Illusion Dog and some of Bunel's work. And this is something at the same time, my, my background is that I used to roof houses on the weekends in high school to pay for the program. So that's kind of my, my background is as well. You know, it's like I, my, I'm the second oldest of four and my parents were always incredibly emotionally supportive and uh, financially supportive as best they could. But then this is something where I had to do on my own. So by the time I'm graduating high school, I got a lot of exposure as a young teenager making paintings. So I had, you know, regional competitions stuff that was held at the uh at the county college i would get like you know best of show or first prize i primarily did portraits you know of my grandparents or people i knew uh and the work itself i guess it could be described as a you know a degree of realism nothing photorealist but something maybe more along the lines of like if alice neal met a little german expressionism you know so Mm -hmm. like heavy on the paint um, well, it's it's such a. I mean, it seems like such an intensive environment, you know, like that level of discipline and and dedication. But at the same time, I mean, it sounds like it was kind of freeform enough that you could kind of really become, you know, interested in a way without it being, I don't know, so structured at the beginning. I don't, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was definitely like an art nerd. I mean, I, I tried to, you know, I, I was exposed to at least through these teachers a lot of the old masters, but people like. Uh, Degas and Cezanne and Picasso and Matisse and sure, sure. This is definitely and, and being outside of Manhattan, I could go into the Met and go into the Frick or the MoMA, you know. And this is just this is my early education, and it's something that I mean, one would think that like if if I lived so close, I would go to school in New York with you know with SVA or Parsons or Pratt Cooper. Um, but I ended up going to Philadelphia. This whole experience, you know, as, as, as a teenager, I mean, is, is that something that you kind of then knew, you know, from an early onset age? Like, yeah, I'm definitely doing this. I mean, it sounds like there's so many, 
so many teachers around you that were were positive and encouraging that it was something that I don't know. It's it, is it like a second nature thing to just kind of go like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. Yeah, I think I'll state again that I was um, extremely fortunate to be exposed to a certain quality um, of teacher and artist that were very encouraging for me at that age. And I, at least by the time I was 16 or 17, knew that this is something I wanted to do. But at the time, I thought that I would maybe uh, become a painter. Mm-hmm. Because that's really what my my focus was, and um, so I, I sort of just made a lot of work, you know, as a kid, and um, you know, slowly but surely, just like during high school, sort of lived my life and had fun, and art was a big part of it. And then when it came time to apply for school, um, I did what is known like you go to the National Portfolio Day, right? You bring your work to one of the universities there's they're in new york you know what the national portfolio day is right there's you know every year there's a whole sure yeah and i, I actually did that professionally which i will get to uh which was great it was so much fun uh yeah and i i was exposed to the academy of fine arts and the and the and the university of the arts which used to be pca the pennsylvania college of art now the university of the arts was a little bit more involved they had you know, visual arts plus like graphic design and commercial design and dance and performance and that, you know, cobble together and make a university. And they offered me a sizable scholarship. So I went there for their foundation year and the second year, which I took a semester of illustration and painting and overall was just wasn't happy with my experience there. It was, it was okay. And then I knew someone that had, I mean, the Academy of Fine Arts was a, like, eight blocks away and I had brought my portfolio there and had gotten accepted into them. So I was a transfer student. So I was 20 when I was coming in as a first year student in 1993. Now the Academy of Fine Arts, as I mentioned to you, is the oldest art school in the United States. It's more of an atelier system. So painting, printmaking, and sculpture are the three majors that they have there. That's it. And within those majors, they have a range of different classes to take um, that are based on older models of like life drawing, cast drawing, color theory, um, very studious, kind of hardcore foundation of like this is what's done in a studio class. Like you will learn how to draw, you will learn how to paint, you will learn form and sculpture, you form and structure. And when you are a third and fourth year student, you have your own studio for two years. You'll have less classes. You'll choose three critics and you'll have them all year long. And you work towards the end of the year show, which was held at the museum. That program, the last two years, mimicked what an MFA program does. So your first two years at the academy, I mean, they're they're not a joke. It's like, you know, they're, they're really serious. But what's interesting, as a 20-year-old, um, the academy was always a continuing education program, which meant that mostly all of the students were older than me in their late 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. So I'm in this environment where people had a career change, 
or they've always been serious uh, about it and they decide to go more of an intensive program. So they come back to the academy. So there's people doing really good work. Yeah, that's I mean, that's got to be really interesting. Yeah. I think about like like the idea of kind of talking to, to maybe younger students that are kind of maybe don't have as much exposure to the arts. So to be in a, kind of an environment where you know that it's that serious and you've got – you know, people that are, are your elder. I mean, it, it's got to, I imagine it's got to be like a really interesting conversation. Every, every class that you're attending and, and, and focused. I think the benefit of that is that being exposed to that level of seriousness is like for, for some people, like for myself is like to work harder at what you're doing, you know, like, yeah, there are some people that, you know, I mean, one of the hardest things to do is to do cast drawing. And, I, you know, there's a cast hall in the Academy Museum, which is a gem of a building built by Frank Furness, Philadelphia architect. I think it was from 1876. We had casts of Michelangelo's David and um, the Nike statue and Lacan and his sons and stuff from the Parthenon. They were all gifted to the Academy in 1803 by Napoleon III. So they're actually right. plaster casts of all amazing ancient relics. And that's a class that you'd go in to draw those. And, but it's one of the hardest things to do. So, you know, for me, it's like, I, I, I guess in some ways I've always been a figurative artist. However, it's like I was exposed to people. There's this artist, Jody Pinto, who was uh, a public sculpture, a public artist, um, she made land art and she's from New York city and she was a critic that came down. She was terrific. And she can talk contemporary art classes. Same with this, another sculptor named Robert Roche who did, you know, a lot of sort of contemporary art. So you had a mix of different classes, right? So I was being exposed to a lot of contemporary art. I learned a lot about a lot of people and movements. Um, and, but what I got turned on to though, was printmaking because I had not done that before. So in my first year, I had etching, lithography, and woodblock by three really cool teachers. Every class, there's like the process of how things are made, but -hmm. then you have a lecture about like the history of printmaking. And one teacher in particular, Dan Miller, who like, God bless him, he's still there, um, would have a lecture every week, whether it was about Japanese woodblock masters or the Blue Rider group, German Expressionism, or, uh, you know, mid-century British artists, printmakers, Kathy Colvitz, you know, learning about, like, Los Caprichos. And then even with that group, I would go to the Philadelphia Museum of Art archives, right, and see the real deal. I'd go and see Rembrandts. I'd go see Goyas and Durers. And then we'd go down to Washington, D.C. and actually see like the real books that Goya made and Durer made from the 1500s or, you know, Goya's Los Caprichos or his Disasters of War or seeing Otto Dix's, his war series from World War One. I. I mean, that was just my education in undergrad, you know. Um, but even at that time, it's like I was I was fascinated by printmaking. It really kind of got under my skin, and um, I became highly experimental in different kinds of prints of how they're made, and with specifically with etching, where um, you know my choice to work on copper or zinc. You know, zinc was a uh, was a metal that when you work with nitrous oxide. 
it, it burns the metal down where, you know, copper, you have ferric chloride. So the, the acid that's in there, it's like it, I would treat things almost like sculpture. So at the time I was doing a lot of printmaking as a major, but I was also minoring, uh, making sculpture. And that was really, I made sculpture for about three years at that time. And since then I haven't made anything, even though I love sculpture, I, most of my favorite artists are sculptors. I've been always more of a, you know, someone who makes 2D. So, you know, it's, it was just a, a really great time. What did the work look like too? I mean, were you still invested in the figure and, and kind of working in that, that realm or by kind of working with all these, these different um, critics and, you know, having all these different voices, I'm sure kind of in different classes and, you know, generating different discussions. I mean, was it something where you kind of explored, you know, a, a lot of different resolutions to, to what you could do in terms of just, you know, working with different materials, different processes? Yeah. I mean, the, the, fa- the sort of foundation classes at the academy, like once you got through them, I found myself much more interested in um, personal narrative um, and, you know, some of it was like appropriation from found materials that I would have. I would then transfer those to the plate. And then it's sort of, I was leaning a little bit more towards mixed media. So like my third year was very heavy in printmaking. So the narrative and metaphorical works that I would make. And again, like I have all slides of that stuff. Like none of it's been digitized (laughs) yet. Uh, (laughs) But it was, what was great about it is that your third and fourth year, it was all working towards your space or your wall at the museum. And it was a, a huge to do social event, but it was an opportunity for um, students to sell their work and get prizes gifted through the Academy. It's a very unique institution. So as a third and fourth year student, I sold a lot of work. I got a lot of prizes um, and helped foster this encourage, you know, that maybe you're on the right track beyond the great, you know, criticism that you'd get from the professors or the visiting artists that would come through and uh, your, your peers. And, you know, at the time, this was in, you know, the mid nineties, the MFA program at the Academy of Fine Arts was new. It was maybe two or three years old. um, And, you know, I made friends with people in the master's program, um, you know, friends that I'm still tight with today. The same going back to the Summer Arts Institute from like, you know, 25 years ago. I'm still very close with some of these folks. It's, it's kind of interesting the sort of bonds that you can make earlier on as a, as a young person in the arts and how you're, you're watching people sort of live, go through their lives. Also other artists and the changes that they go through um, and the work that they make and how that develops and, you know, even friends that like are, are actors or writers and like what's what's been developed in their life. It's it's been a it's been a trip to see that. And so could you talk just a little bit about, you know, your MFA experience then? I mean, was it was it that different from, you know, where you started in, in terms of just, you know, again, like what you were exploring? Was it kind of a continuation? Was it something where they when you when you went there, they, they did that kind of you know, thing where they tear you apart and, and expect yeah. you to, to do entirely different stuff. And what you applied with is, was good then, but now it's, you know, we don't want Yeah, I, I got, I got some of, 
and, um, and a healthy dose of it. And maybe it was, it was necessary. Um, I went to Mason Gross School of the Arts at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And having been from New Jersey, at this point in time, I had been living in Brooklyn um, for a year and a half. So I commuted from Brooklyn to New Jersey. Um, Rutgers had its reputation as an interdisciplinary MFA program. You can do whatever you want. You can work with who you want. Painting, sculpture, mixed media, performance, film, uh, and they have some pretty awesome people teaching there. But uh, yes, I think at the time I uh, did receive a lot of that, well, this is the work that you were doing before. It's been done. Why bother doing it? Sort of reverse psychology. So I found myself scrambling quite a bit. I think in some ways I wanted to return to painting and the work of these monotypes that I made. When I moved to Brooklyn in the summer of 2003, I took that work and applied for a couple of residencies and other stuff, and I got a residency at the Lower East Side Print Shop in the summer of 2004. A key holder position is what it's called. They give mm-hmm. you- yeah, I've, I've seen it advertised a bunch. It's terrific. Uh, seems like a great experience. Yeah, It yeah. was. Um, they give you a set of keys, 24-hour access for three months. But in 2004, the Lower East Side print shop was still on East 4th at the Lower East Side. They've since moved to Hell's Kitchen in a much grander, beautiful space. So if there was more than two people in the shop, it was a little tight back then. What it allowed me to do was to return to working with etching. So at that period of time, it had been about eight years since I worked with copper or worked with acid or done any of that. So it allowed me to make uh, four images in three months with an addition uh, of maybe 10 each. And um, it was great. It was super helpful. And at the same time, I also uh, got like a free class from the Manhattan Graphic Center. So I took an etching class to sort of get me back in the groove. So while I'm taking this class, I'm also at the residency And by the end of the residency, I was asked to, uh, if I wanted to pull an addition for a local artist. So that's when my skill level, like I already had enough experience in the past where it was sort of like riding a bicycle, but there's the technical side, which you just approve upon. But then there's what I'm actually, I might try to say with this medium, that's what I was working with you know like it was an extension of this other body of work so yes in graduate school initially people were like um you need to move on you know it's it's also knowing that going into it and trying to remain open within Rutgers University within Mason Gross there was an organization that was called the Rutgers uh, Center for Innovative Print and Paper, which is a mouthful, but it became the Brodsky Center. Uh, it was run by this really cool lady, an interesting artist, Judith Brodsky. And they were part of Rutgers, but they were their own entity, and they seemed like they had their own money, and they brought in uh, their own visiting artists. So it was originally set up for women and minority artists to come in and work with a master printer to pull an edition. And I worked with them 
as well. So that was a killer experience. The people there were terrific. Again, the print world is smaller than the art world. It's, you know, and it's a community of people helping each other out. Uh, I learned a great deal. And um, I didn't necessarily just do printmaking as a graduate student. I did, that was like maybe a third of what I did. The other stuff was sort of kind of failed sculpture. <laughs> but the other work was this form of mixed media that I had to blow through about four different bodies of work. And I, I, I did a lot of work, but a lot of it, you know, I, I, in some ways I'm, I'm questioning whether it's I am, I'm doing it for myself. I think there was a lot of confusion about like getting responses from people and reading off of those responses that if it was validated by people saying, yes, it's interesting or professors, it was like, I was sort of being led by that. And then I had to sort of just go through enough of, I think, failure to then land with a body of work that started out as, you know, the first piece was sort of just an accident, which then led to a body of work, which led to my thesis show. And then a month after getting picked up by a gallery in Philadelphia called Seraphim Gallery, having a show with them like right after graduate school, uh, selling some work and being with them for about a year. So for me, that was, I think, uh, just an interesting example of like partially validation, partial, like you don't know where this stuff is going to lead. And then, you know, a year or so after graduate school, the work that I'm doing is becoming, it's different. It's starting to be experimental. It's starting to be collage based and that these folks weren't as interested in it. And I was like, well, that's okay. So we decided to, you know, uh, move apart because they had an idea of like what they wanted to show. And I was no longer feeling comfortable with the work that was sort of still had one foot in the world of graduate school. Like I was already making a shift. So by the time my son is born, I had a, a nice studio in Red Hook. It was a shared space, but it was a, it was a decent space. Uh, I had to had to give that up and move to a table in our apartment, and that's where I was for about a year or so until my marriage fell apart and I had to move out. But you know, I I felt there was always been an, an absolute necessity to continue making work. That's what kind of keeps me grounded. That's what keeps me sane. Well, yeah, and you were talking about before even just kind of. Um... You know, going to your studio now where you've kind of got like a set amount of time where you, you know, might take a, take a few minutes to kind of meditate, clear your mind from all that other stuff because you've just got this set amount of time to kind of Absolutely. to work through it all, you know. So tell me about tell me about that series, uh, you know, the last one, Declassified Nowheres on, on your website. You know, what was that all about? And, and maybe we can kind of pick it up from there. There was a movie that was made um, in 91 called The Black Robe. Do you know that movie? No, I don't. It's I don't. by this director, Bruce uh, Beresford, and it's the story of um, 17th century Dominican priests coming to the New World to bring Christianity to the natives. Okay, mm-hmm. So there's a scene in the movie where it's at the end of the day, and their canoes are off on the side of the, the river. There's a fire going, and one of the priests is writing in his journal. And the chief walks up to him. And says, you know, what are you doing? And the priest looks at him and says, 
well, tell me something about your friend that I, I don't know. And the chief says, well, uh, his mother died last spring. So the priest writes in his journal, so-and-so's mother died last spring, and gives his book to the other priest and says, read what I wrote. And the other priest reads, you know, so-and-so's mother died last spring. And the chief looked at them in astonishment and said, what kind of magic is that? And this idea that words or language are a form of magic, if you actually don't know what's being interpreted in front of you, the meaning of it, you know, the sort of obfuscation that can happen. Um, and it's not just words like abracadabra or open sesame, the sort of like very cliche ones, but how information is presented to us in a way that when it's disseminated from a certain source, there's a way of how there's a believability that can happen. There's also how the role of technology has played into that, that um, satellite imagery, for one, is where I was starting with this series of declassified nowhere. Because the idea of something that's being declassified is coming from a source that in some ways has designated the most important parts are now redacted, they're taken away, and you're left with these fragments. So these aerial views are ancient cities or structures, these places where people used to live once upon a time in history, and that the roads or the rivers that fed these places, from an aerial view, they look like these organic shapes. They're not grids. So part of me, the collage, and, you know, I would find these images, I would source them out, I would cut them out, I would excavate the cityscapes away, reassemble the landscape that supported that life, you know, enlarge them quite a bit, and then use a flash acrylic to paint out a very solid and sort of distinct geometric shape on top of it, sort of play with that idea of uh, redacted information. You know, mm-hmm. the, the relationship we have with, with landscape in some ways, all the times that people have passed over them, lived through them, and it sort of is going into the realm of, of ancient history and ancient civilization, which has always been a deep fascination of mine. Um, I've had some cool opportunities in traveling the world to neat places and seeing a lot of cool stuff. And, you know, I, I'm of the belief that people have been around a whole lot longer than we've sort of been given the story of. So so when it comes to obfuscation of information, that's something that is a thread that's in a lot of my work. So even if you look at my work on my site, in some ways you know it's done by one person, but you know, conceptually and thematically they are fairly different. And that there's something where um, what that lends to... Uh, with the collage work, because that stuff really, that was more mixed media, is that, you know, being a little bit more of a traditionalist and more of a purist, like I like doing things by hand, cutting things out, being very neat about it. And, um, you know, the series of the end of days or so yesterday, you know, that's, that's coming from a place where the source material was as important as what had to be said and that, you know, I, I sourced out 
Time and Life magazines, specifically from the very late 50s to the early 70s. People that know their magazines, there's a certain saturation of color that's recognizable. I was interested really in the sort of Vietnam era when these magazines were being printed and to sort of talk about the sort of cyclical nature of events as people and how they happen in time. And I had an experience by going to the Creationist Museum in Kentucky in October of 2007. And if you're not familiar with that space, it is a museum where if you have, you know, $23 million, you can make a museum about anything you want. <laughs> really. Sure, so sure. I, I, it was, it was profound to be for someone, you know, as I mentioned, as a, as a young person, um, going to museums that has been a, a huge part of my life. I've been to museums in all the places in the world that I've traveled, but I've never been to a museum that was so anti-science and anti-learning and that what it made me feel is and recognize is that the long-standing conversation that certain groups have had with their notion of the end times, that the world is going to end some sometime soon, I guess, you know, it's like in the near future. Um, people have been saying that for, for fucking ever. Okay. So, um, what I uh, sort of understood at that point in time is that, uh, it suspends people's responsibility for taking care of things today because they just assume in a, in a sort of narrow and linear way, well, the world's going to end anyway. So the end of days series was playing with that idea of cycles and, 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 you know, we're at that point in time in 2000 and, Seven and eight were still in another war, another generation later. So I felt that the source material it had a had a, a certain uh, ephemera. The quality of the of the paper and the production had to be. It was important for those compositions to look that way, to have a dated feel to it, because they are referencing elements of data. They are referencing elements of surrealism, um, but not the surrealist tendencies of like mining the subconscious, because they're very conscious. Uh, conversations and how the compositions are laid out and every single piece in that series references what i consider to be a dire consequence of sort of contemporary civilization whether it's like you know uh mining plastic products from foreign countries and the lack of quality control for that and diamond mining and this sort of like human toll and basically the the lie that this product is actually a rare element you know and then in some ways, like, this is where my love of people like Goya come in, because that's been a series that I feel like the Los Caprichos uh, really inspired me to think about these uh, very complicated social dynamics, because each of them is their own little world. And they're funny. They're wacky. I mean, they, they reference sort of B-movie, sci-fi, late-night, um, strange scenarios that uh, – was, you know, for a while, my breakfast cereal. You know, I was very interested in dystopic, you know, sci-fi uh, and writing and movies. And I feel like it really sort of came out with this work. And that, you know, it was a good spurt for about a year and change. And then, you know, in some ways it was uh, a matter of just the conversation itself within the work stopped. And I, I, I you know, 
recognize that for my history of making work, I sort of work on a theme for two or three years or so, and then sort of shift gears. And I, there's lots of like individual pieces that I'll make that don't necessarily fit in with the larger body of works. But what I try to represent on my site, at least is like more of like a collective, you know, cohesive body. And that, you know, this is coming up on the most recent series, which is at this point in time is going to be, I've been working on it for five years this month. I heard about this a while ago. um, And this is from a graduate school professor. And it talked about the way knowledge is, uh, is given out to your public, you know, that there's people who display knowledge and by displaying knowledge, it shows a form of expertise that in some ways it makes the artwork, um, for the initiated only, you know? So I think very heavy theory related work is this way. Um, I think some very dense work is this way. I think some funny insider one-liner punchline work is this way, but, uh, there's also a way of communicating knowledge about a shared experience to an audience. And I know that I'm part of the latter. I'm much more interested in my work communicating to people that, uh, of an art background, but also of the general population, you know, and it's when I'm making work, I'm not necessarily always considering like what my audience is, but as a visual person, I think about, normal consensus that it, people have in a very short attention span, all of us as consumers, as contemporary consumers. So it's been, you know, a sort of a primary uh, function, I feel like, in my studio is to make things that I would want to look at for more than a minute or two. And that, you know, and I, I feel like I, I have success with that, with work, that plays with the ambiguity of the familiar and the unrecognizable working together. It happens in all of the work on the site, but really intensely works with the conversations from the void series because the ambiguity of the familiar and unrecognizable, it creates a sense of mystery some of them imply figures or people or interiors and to kind of maybe bring it back to also to something that you were talking about a little bit earlier these are all sourced from from kind of commercial magazines so they're all sourced from magazines you know you're talking about this familiar experience you know that we all have in terms of having like a maybe like a short attention span yeah. in terms of something yeah. but there's also something that's very playful about that that it's that it's something that might be as you know you might be taking something that's as banal and and something that we do all the time, which might be paging through a magazine and kind of turn them into these, I don't know, these these configurations that make you kind of, you know, wonder what's going on and, and imagine the possibilities in that. So um, it's very interesting to, to to spend time with them. In some ways that it's it's an interior. I mean, we can see and that there's something about, you know, the removal. And I, I sort of look at also as sort of I'm, I'm excavating these components out. And removing the bodies and the material items, and it's the, the supporting backgrounds again that are coming back together. But it's the negative spaces in relationship to the other negative spaces that are reforming this narrative. And by and large, they are they're modest in size, between like ten by twelve or 
12 by 14. Um, but then I'm doing another uh, size of work that, um, and if you look on the site, you can just sort of look at the dimensions of them where some are like, you know, 30 by 25 or three feet by two feet. And those are, are taking these fragments that I have and scanning them in, enlarging them, printing them out, cutting them out again, and then making larger work. And what happens sure. is that I'm using you know Photoshop as a tool to make things larger, but not tweaking it. You know, I'm not using that as a vehicle for expression. It's more of just like I need to make things larger. Uh, and by doing that, and when I print it, it seems that it liberates the image and the color from its original magazine source. And what tends to happen to some of them is that when they're reassembled, they almost take on the presence of uh, a distilled like, film image from like a very strange movie, you know, part David Lynch or Pasolini or Fellini. They're very, they're very odd, some of them in person. And, uh, you know, I think they translate well online, but what I've heard from people when they see them in person is that they get totally different, you know, vibe from them. And then, you know, in some ways, it's it's just an issue of, um, you know, saving up money to do them large because I wish I could do them all the time. Um, but I sort of work with what I have. So, you know, I, I get to a point where I always have something happening in the studio and there's like several stages of where stuff is at. So if I've got an hour, two hours, I could show up and just start hitting it right away. How do you work through these? Are these you know, elaborately planned out? Do you do a lot of drawing? Is it something that's very responsive when you're, you know, looking at the image and finding shapes that you, you know, might alter or find ways to play around with? How does that process work? Part of the process is just going in and finding and separating these, these pieces. And they kind of seem like they quickly gravitate towards each other. And I'll have certain piles I don't necessarily work all monochromatically, but I just have certain sort of tones or atmospheric qualities. There's some pieces that have shapes that are in focus and then some that are out of focus. In some ways, it's sampling. It's, it's, it almost feels like, like working on a, a mixing board with sound because I'll have a lot of these little compositions spread out and we'll work with each of them. And sometimes there'll be ones that for whatever reason, they start to develop faster or I just get the internal sense. It's, it's really just like building upon the composition that it's just working or it's not working. As simple as that. I don't do drawings for these works. It, it really is uh, some ways by gut instinct and just visually just like looking at things for a while to see like and a lot of just basic tweaking. So sometimes it may take, you know, several months for one of these to be finished. And it's it's strange. It's, it's a slow burn process of how these are actually created because there's a lot of tweaking in between of moving stuff around. Um, with the smaller work, I use like a, a archival spray mount. So I have to deconstruct the pieces down to like the lowest layers and then slowly figure out how to reassemble them. I mean, that takes the longest block of time and it's always nerve wracking. And I've had like a, you know, a perfect track record of always nailing it. You know, and some of the best compliments that I've received from people is when they see them, they think they're just photoshopped until they look a little bit closer. Then they're like, oh, wow, damn, these are cut by hand. So there's that seamlessness that it's something that uh, that 
the registration is is coming from my background as a printmaker you know yeah it's interesting especially just because because those you know those shapes become so intricate and you know at the same time you're kind of wondering especially when they start interacting with other shapes where they're taken from and um again if it's something that you're kind of combining you know from different sources that also kind of makes it interesting because you start wanting to figure out these relationships or kind of form you know forming some kind of relationship in your head but i think it's especially interesting too the way that you know shadows will kind of appear in the works or again like some areas will pop forward and become really flat and others will kind of recede so it's also something that seems like very spatial too in terms of the way that you're allowed to play around with these well they are i mean the the, the size of them themselves you know, as I said, are, are fairly modest. So it's, you know, for me, it's, um, there's a certain amount of play, I think, within each composition where, you know, I'm interested in making a dynamic piece of work that will hold your attention, as simple as that is, you know. So there are elements that are shadows, like you can't cast a shadow without a body, but when the body is removed and the shadows still exist, it has this very disorientating feeling to it especially when you have you know some of my compositions that have very similar uh numerous backgrounds that are like white or green and they you know they seem like they're from one source but they're from multiple sources and they're actually you know mined over a long period of time to sort of have this sort of seamless feeling to it and yeah there there are i think are compositional elements that i've seen with Cezanne or juan gris or picasso that i'm interested in sort of having that that, that feeling where, like, you can see something that, you know, you can identify with, but I really try to delineate from actually having any particular masculine or feminine forms. I sort of want to keep it as people or any particular kind of forms that uh, reference uh, anything within pop culture. You know, it's just something where it's just, it really is just shapes and colors as basic as it is. And at the same time, when I look at these magazines, they are uh, selling items for people, you know, their fashion, their industry, their things that are, are presenting things to you in a way that for advertisement, you want to buy them because you will feel good. You will look good. This will be interesting for you. You will become a more interesting person. And I feel when I remove the material items of people and reassemble the backgrounds that there's almost like the psychic tension that exists within the picture plane. And that's something mm-hmm. when they become sort of the larger narrative within these interiors, they remind me of all the places that I've lived and all the people that have come before me in these apartments. So it's almost like there's a there's a, a curious juxtaposition of like interior basic motifs, but the energy that is being dispersed within the negative spaces, it's like in some ways they're, they're come more like a, of a spiritual piece, you know, it's sort of like capturing all the movement within a certain period of time within a work. I mean, do you, do you ever just kind of sit and, and just, I don't know, just kind of observe them, you know, in terms of the way that you're working. And obviously when you're working, of through course, it, of course. Yeah, man. Is there a time where you just sit and, and you can't, you can't work cause you're just kind of trying to see this, this, um, this new configuration or this new way of looking at it? Yeah, I mean, David, I mean, think the idea of part of the practice of a studio practice is, you know, you show up, I show up, even though I have this method of, of like working, sitting and looking at it is also working. I've totally done that before. 
where I could just come to the to my studio. And again, I might only have an hour, but me being in the space is really part of the is, is part of the greater practice. Is I'm still showing up because the trajectory of my life in New York between like where I live, where I work, where my studio is, is not a straight line. It's like by showing up sometimes I, I know like that's my space. I feel safe there. And uh, sometimes I just have to be quiet and look at it, you know, because there's something really, I think incredibly valid about that pause because when you're in an environment where Time in some is more valuable than money. That if I don't feel like I'm making something or if I'm working on something, I still need to be able to be comfortable and just sit and be quiet and look at it. That's something that comes from like undergraduate days when you were a little bit younger and had more luxury of time. You know, it, it allows me to sort of like loosen up a little bit and think about in some ways what the lifespan of this piece would be outside of the studio, whether that's in a group show and what kind of conversation it can have with other work or in the bigger picture of what conversation it's having with the world beyond like, does this composition work or not? You know, it's, um, it's something that I, you know, do fairly regularly. And it seems like it's something too, that you, you, you know, like you had talked about, you know, kind of working through a, a series of ideas or, or about a work, you know, for a couple of years and then kind of moving on. It seems like then this is one where you've kind of, I don't know, seen that there, there's, I don't know, maybe a way to keep expanding it, you know, and, and exploring it. As of right now, I am working on two new series of works that like, they're not on my site. They're not that far along. And it's just, a, it's they're they're collage based. But what I feel is that the kind of work that I, you know, have made in the conversation from the Voice series is very uniquely mine, and I, I say that um, with actually a bit of humility. And what I mean by humility is that, like, I remain teachable as an artist, as a person, as a parent, as a as just a guy, you know. But I also am very aware about what's out there, and that this work is something that not a lot of people are doing work like this body work. And that is something that I can keep doing and I would like to do for a long time. But I also recognize that like I, there's, I'm getting bored. So these two other bodies of work, one of them deals with shamanism and about placing yourself in two different worlds. And that could be the analog world and the digital world the spiritual world and the material world, all collage based. And the other things deal with as far as images, I, I can't even get into that, but it's going to be wacky. But what I'm setting myself up because I have a vacation in two weeks is I want to start to do one uh, large piece. And it, the imagery is just like it's a picture of a plinth with a ladder on top. And on top of the ladder is going to be uh, it's going to be a much more hopefully sculptural looking collage i mean i've done a lot of this smaller work and uh, and i i've really enjoyed it and i've got a lot of great feedback and i have a couple cool shows that i got curated into in the spring in new york you know it's it's like it's very promising and but this is something where like i need to i need to just get out of my comfort zone i need to take a risk with this other stuff you know and i i'm super psyched to be able to uh 
shoot some images your way when they're done. Well, and it'll be exciting to have you back on. You know, I, this podcast allows me to be pretty nosy, you know, so it's, right it's interesting to, to kind of continue those conversations. Yeah. And, and so I wanted to ask before we get out of here, um, are there any exhibitions or shows that you have coming up that you're particularly excited about? The, the one show that I have is uh, it's going to be at St. John's University in Jamaica, Queens. It's, it seems to be a really interesting collage show that's going to be at the University Gallery. It is curated by the uh, vice provost of the university, who is an English professor, mm-hmm. but also a poet. And he's written about collage. Yeah, that was cool. And then uh, this other show is curated by an artist named Yan Cheng. The show will be called Homesick Home, and it's slated to be at Leslie Heller Workspace on the Lower East Side sometime in like February or March. I had a studio visit with Jan about a month ago and totally hit it off with him. Super cool guy, fun, funny, smart. Yeah, just, you know, heard about me through a friend. And, uh, yeah, right now it's like it's the making of work and it's still following up with certain people for visits, you know, and and trying to, you know, wrangle support. You know, that's, that's, that's just a... It's a big part of it, you know. <laughs> right, right. Well, again, it's um, it's really cool to hear about it, and and again, it's been really fascinating to to listen to you talk about, gosh, all that history and and everything. So I apologize for for all the verbose uh, <laughs> battering that I'm giving you now, but um, again, really cool stuff. So I appreciate you taking the time. I greatly appreciate you uh, doing this with me, and I'm I'm super psyched that we were able to stay on track and make this happen. Well, thanks again, man. Absolutely. Well, a big thanks once again to Paul Lockney for joining us. We hope that you go to his website, paullockney.com. And again, there's a link right in this blog post. So go do that if you haven't already. You can also check out my work at davidlinaway.com. Again, there's a handy hyperlink that takes you right to my homepage, and you can see some of the various bodies of work. Again, I've been painting a lot of these kind of nostalgic uh, gas stations and abandoned buildings lately, so they are up, and there are new images on davidlinaway.com, so please check them out. General reminder, once again, please check out all of our great interviews with artists on Studio Break. You can easily go to the iTunes store and subscribe to the podcast, which is a great way to not miss an episode and catch ones that you missed. So please go ahead and subscribe there. Your comments and positive reviews really help get us exposure in iTunes, so if you'd be so kind... We also ask that if you like this interview or any of the other ones, please tweet them, share them on Facebook, share them on Tumblr. Please help us get the word out there. It's super easy for you to do, and it really helps us get more listeners. So please help spread the word. While you're at it, you might as well like our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break and also follow us on Tumblr at studio-break.tumblr. Once again, we also want to say thank you to Skylar Mail, who is the artist and musician providing the music for Studio Break. You can check out his website at SkylarMail.com. He's also part of a new band in Chicago called Gravity Waves, so go check them out if you see that they're playing. They've been playing at the Double Door and some other clubs, so they are around. All right, that's all the show we have this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you real soon.